Welcome to Reinventing Education, a podcast for teachers, parents, and students who desire to create a more compelling vision of what education could be. Perspectives, practices, and new ideas. I'm Rob McLeod. On this episode, Brennan O'Leary and I speak with Chris Baum. Chris Baum is an educator and social entrepreneur, passionate about creating organizations that help others access their full potential. Chris co-founded and serves as head of school at Millennium School, a laboratory school in San Francisco, California, which develops new educational methods based on developmental science. Millennium's approach focuses on growing from the inside out, helping adolescents to develop an authentic sense of self and to sustain their passion for learning and growth. You can find more information about this work at www.millenniumschools.org or through Chris's blog, www.growingwiser.blog. The through line for me in this work and and how I got into it and, and hooked in it in a way that I would not have guessed is the feeling that there was more potential in my own journey into adolescence than, than I got to find out about at the time and finding myself uh, exposed to schools where we were struggling to find that potential in middle and high schoolers felt that there has to be a place where we can create a lab, a place that will explore what human potential is and how to access more of it. Uh, particularly when kids are going through the transformation of adolescence. That is, uh, to me, the the biggest missing opportunity in education. And then as we went, we had the good fortune of three years of going around the world trying to understand if we zoomed out of how schools are and how do we tweak them and, and got the biggest picture of what human potential is. What is that? How do we understand it in a different way? Um, I had been introduced to integral theory before, but didn't, didn't know it well. And in the course of that research really came to find a grounding in it, find a way that by looking at human developments through that and other lenses, um, we got to have a bigger frame. And so it wasn't just uh, how do we prepare kids to be a little bit stronger on whatever standardized test is popular at the moment, um, but we could be looking at a wider view of, of humanity as it, as it grows from child to adult. That's really interesting because I find most schools have this idea of like the end point being the most important thing, like getting you ready for post-secondary, getting you ready for the job. But you're talking about like the actual time when that child's an adolescent, what's most needed for them. Um, right. Why adolescence and why not earlier possibly? Yeah. And, you know, I think when people focus on what's coming next, uh, this, this sounds maybe too critical, but it, it might be a sign that they don't fully understand what is happening right now. It's, if that's confusing, at least focus on or use as motivation the fact that something is coming up. Um, so that that's part of why we focus on adolescence, that it, it seems, at least in U.S. culture, that there's clear understanding of what an aspiration is for an elementary school. There's a relatively clear sense of what we'd like to do for older kids as they're getting into high school and college, but we're deeply uneasy about middle school. And I I think it, it speaks to how unprocessed a lot of our own adolescent journeys are and how much our society struggles with the messiness of it. And so middle school often gets kind of attached to something before or after. 
continuation of elementary, a preparation for high school, when um, I think neurologically it's pretty clear that it's one of the most uh, neuroplastic times in our lives, uh, by some measures, even more than early childhood. So it deserves its own attention. It is a really unique developmental phase. And I think wise places and times in other parts of uh, human history have known that getting this right, the transition into adulthood, uh, is one of the most important things that a society does. We've somehow missed that boat, I think, in our society. And uh, there's a lot of room for improvement. So that's a long way of saying that's what drew us to it, the sense that um, here is a huge amount of missing human potential that could be realized. And we need a way to explore it and discover it. How has that transitioned into some of the like the systems or the practices within the schools? So what's the Millennium School doing either yeah. differently or things you are doing or things you're not doing compared to, say, some of the more conventional school yeah. systems? Yeah. Well, for us, it all... It all starts in a, what we call an adolescent developmental framework, which is a compilation of Wilbur's work and, and many other people's work um, to try to understand that big frame picture of human potential. And essentially, um, we believe there are three stages that adolescents can go through. And the, the bigger picture is that most of our development before adolescence is driven by biology. So as our brains are developing, we're kind of bumped into the next developmental stage, you know, unless our environment is terrible. Um, but starting at adolescence, it's no longer driven purely by biology. It's driven by context in many ways. It's driven by who you're influenced by as both peers and adults, driven by your, <clears throat> your own level of motivation. And so this uh, framework that we created talks about what we think are the three stages that are available to adolescents and after. And essentially, it's defined by what the core drive is. So the, the first stage is about seeking belonging and speaks to, we have markers for what different forms of intelligence look like at that stage. The next stage is about seeking achievement. So going beyond a black and white simple view of, I want to belong to this group and this group is right. Achievement more individualistic. I can carve my path. I figured out how to maximize and optimize things. Uh, but it's still achieving for someone else's measure to, to impress others. And so we call the third stage uh, authenticity or leadership. And that's a stage where you're starting to become more metacognitive. You're starting to notice your patterns of thought, notice the ways that you've been kind of a culture to do certain things. Uh, and so each of those stages maps into markers and then educational experiences that help kids grow at the right time to the next stage. And <clears throat> that's really the foundation of the school that we want to understand what those markers are, how we help kids advance, uh, not only cognitively, but in other forms of intelligence, and to try to find ways to measure those, some quantitative, some qualitative. And uh, our hope is that when you do, when you work from the inside out that way, students are able to both access more of their innate potential and access academics more easily, uh, since we still have to exist in the real world with very specific academic outcomes that we need to meet. Uh, but we really believe that when you do the inner work first, the academics uh, tap into motivation that's readily available when the inner work is addressed. Can you give us just a quick sense of how that kind of assessment would look like? So the assessment and those markers of where a kid is at within these kind of three stages and, and to what degree that's different, differentiated for whether 
um, systemically or kind of on a day-to-day basis or in the big picture? Yeah. So for us, it's key that there are small, we call them forums, uh, advisory groups, where one adult gets to know a small group of kids really well. And that group of kids gets to have a high level of trust. So that's a space where they can practice all kinds of tools, including really how to be authentic and reveal what's going on for them, notice it in others. And then that adult is picking up information from the student, from the power of the group, and from the academic experiences they're seeing, even from the parents' uh, perspective as well. And they're putting that information together and then putting it on this developmental map. So they'll, they'll notice these markers or they'll suggest new markers since this map is very much an evolving thing that help us understand, you know, here's where the student is now uh, in this form of intelligence. And if we can create the right challenge at the right time, then we help them grow when they're ready. Uh, We believe you can't really accelerate it, but if you have the right responsive environment that challenges them in the right ways, then they'll naturally move on to the next stage when they're ready. Uh, And the simplest thing in that, the simplest practice is that the adults have to do it for themselves. But it's our own work to model that because most of the information transferred from us to kids is not through conscious conversation. It's, it's the unconscious signaling and modeling of what we believe, how we live, how we handle conflict, what we do when we've had a terrible day. All of those things are being picked up at high bandwidth, if you will, by students. And we have to work on ourselves enough to be comfortable that we are modeling these things in our very imperfect ways. Uh, and that that's the primary context that the students are going to have to know what's okay. I'm sitting here just thinking like, this sounds like coaching mm. to a large degree. Um, I'm curious if you can maybe unpack that, like to what degree are you, yeah, what, give us a sense of like the relationships, like you say, between staff and students. And as you've hinted at, like between staff and staff, what kind of maybe norms or conversations or agreements do you guys have between staff and how you will interact with students? Yeah. So we uh, take our medicine, you know, before we (laughs) offer it to anyone else. So we, as a small staff, uh, there are a dozen of us on this core team uh, are in a forum an advisory group of just adults and all the tools that we're trying to offer students, whether it's how we resolve a conflict between two adults how we get presence, um, how we try to, you know, reveal what's going on in our inner process. Um, all of that we're doing with each other. And it's, you know, when we're inviting someone onto the team, it's not a professional only relationship. We don't want people wearing the masks of, I'm not here as Chris, I'm here as teacher to just fulfill this job responsibility. So we're a group of humans first, we play multiple roles. And so practicing that in our adult group, hopefully gives us the grounding to live that with students uh, where they see the way that we relate to each other and and the ways that we hopefully can hold space for them. Um, So in practice, it means that we we reserve time a half day every month or so, um, where as adults, we are just working on this as our own practice. Um, and then several times per year, we take longer chunks of time to either go deep together or go off on different trainings or programs where we're continuing to be at our growth edge. So 
hopefully we're all on this journey together. It's not adults who have figured it out conveying their nuggets of wisdom to kids. It's adults at their edge with kids at their edge and we're modeling what we can and being changed by it as they are. The, just comparing that in my mind with the general um, apathy or cynicism or borderline nihilism that characterizes a lot of uh, conventional teaching um, development, the sort of like apathy towards PD and like, this isn't really mm. going to change anything. Um, I'm assuming from your staff, there must be a, an incredible buy-in or th this feels like really juicy, really impactful. Um, I'm just curious if you could speak to your own experience with seeing this evolve within a school con like, is this going way beyond what you thought was possible in a school? Completely. Yeah. I think we, we didn't even know how far beyond it was going to go when we started it, but the, the kinds of experiences that we're seeing from kids are, are really changing my impression of what's possible. And, we're, we take tools from wherever we find them where we think they're useful. And so we've taken tools, for example, from CEO trainings about how to resolve conflicts, manage your emotions. And at the beginning of our journey, we really heavily translated those to make them simple and concrete so that all students could access them. And now that we're in our third year of this, we basically don't translate these adult tools anymore <laughs> as we're finding that kids at 11, 12, 13 get it. Uh, they're so socially oriented that when you give them tools that help them understand their social world and their inner world, um, they can absorb them fast and it goes to the level of identity formation. So when you're working with a 45 year old, their identity is very well formed. It's going to be hard to shift that possible, but hard. Um, when you're working with a 12 year old and offering them these ways of understanding themselves in the world, as they're figuring out who they are at very basic levels, uh, it goes in deep and they, they start to live it. And, you know, I, I was just at a school event uh, recently and I had a parent come up to me and say, you know, I want to tell you about the conflict resolution process that my 12 year old daughter just led in our household where she, you know, identified a facilitator and coached me through a six stage process, pretty complicated process that required me to, you know, these are my words now, witness emotions, uh, you know, step back and understand what part I, you know, was playing in the, in the conflict. And obviously I couldn't have been happier. And I don't think I would have thought before we started the school that that was commonly possible. I would have thought some very special few students would be able to access that. But I now believe that almost all students can access that if their environment models it for them. And the, these programs or models or systems or structures that you guys are bringing in, is there um, like a, a shared set that are used school-wide or is this something that's differentiated on a kind of teacher-by-teacher -teacher basis of what people are most skilled with? It's a little bit of both, but there is a core shared set. Um, so the way our school is structured on, on Wednesdays, we don't have any traditional academic classes. Uh, we spend the morning in doing the inner work, we spend the afternoon on an expedition into the real world in some way. Um, and so that morning, uh, we first do kind of a larger group teaching and we have a curriculum that we've, we've built for that. And then we go to these small groups to really process. So it could be something that we've planned, like 
a conflict resolution tool or going deeper into mindfulness and meditation, or it could be something emergent, you know, something that's happened in the community that's distressing. And now we try to figure out what tool from this grab bag do we want to seize on to make this a good teachable moment. So there's a lot of time dedicated to it though. And I think that's, that's one of the most significant structural differences between us and a, a more traditional school. And I'm curious because, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are in like a private school kind of model where parents are seeking you guys out and paying to have their children in their school. What is it about the school's model that's speaking to parents or is there a common thread of why parents are coming to your school? I, I think there are a couple primary reasons, but most people, at least in the U.S., I think would describe middle school as one of the worst times of their life. Their life. I mean, uh, anecdotally speaking, uh, probably two thirds would say who we've interviewed, you know, it's worst or it's close to the worst time of their life. So I think there are a lot of parents out there who are wondering, is anybody doing something at least a little bit different <laughs> and trying to find some route that has grounding to it? Um, it feels like here there, there are sometimes reactions to, uh, taking you towards schools that reject all of the traditional outcomes and are completely about creating a sense of social and emotional safety, which is essential. Um, but I think sometimes there's an overcorrection where you don't want to discard the real world elements, the practical need to succeed academically, to be able to go on to wherever you want afterwards. Um, and so I think it's that kind of parent that we've found where this is a school where we're using neuroscience to try to really understand differently what human potential is and reach much more of it. And at the same time, we don't want to live outside of the real world. We don't want to be a bubble where it's, you know, happy and rainbows and unicorns here. And then you slam headfirst into the real world after you leave, um, which I think is part of a good adolescent program too, that kids at that age are keenly interested in the real world and how do people find their way? Um, so I think that's a balance that's helped, uh, helped us find parents who are interested and, and being in San Francisco at this moment in time, and there are a lot of people with big ideas and are looking for something different is hugely helpful. There are probably not many places in the world where we could have launched it uh, as quickly as it has here. Yeah. Can you give us this, like walk us through maybe the, I feel I can't even use the word typical student in your school because it sounds like you're meeting kids where they're at and there's a very differentiated experience for them. But can you give us a sense what a kid's week would look like in the school? Or maybe if you need to zoom out to a month, if things are sort of changing that much, but just give someone a sense of what a kid is going through on an yeah. average day or week at your school. Yeah. Um, so we learn in six week cycles, um, some of the research that informed us was that we need to build our learning model around the emotional cycles of learning. And six weeks is commonly a time that lets us get excited about a new topic or a new challenge or quest, dive into it, uh, encounter frustrations, have to reconcile those, uh, and then come out with some type of product that we can be proud of. So the whole school year is designed in these six week bursts. After each burst, we we have a time of rest, time we shift our attention to something else. Um, so within one of those cycles, a student walks in. Uh, after there's time to settle in, we have a morning meeting. 
where they enter our biggest space, our gymnasium, um, in silence as we're playing music. Different teachers and or students play a live piece of music as a way to kind of settle us, um, let us start off in a way that's more embodied. Uh, then it's a student-run meeting. So students lead a meditation of a few minutes for the whole school and then uh, talk about any announcements for the day. Uh, after that, they go into a long block. They spend essentially the whole rest of the morning in a quest. And uh, a quest is uh, one of those six-week projects where they're trying to answer a huge question um, in some type of, of project uh, that they're forming uh, that involves the school and people in the real world. So to give you an example, um, one of my favorite quests, uh, the question was, has America dealt with slavery? Have we ever reconciled anything about that part of our history? Um, and so students weave together different academic disciplines as well as their own internal work um, about how they witness racism, for example, in society, how it's affected them about inclusion and exclusion. Uh, all those projects culminate in presenting something to an external audience. So that project, for example, they're preparing a presentation that's their answer to the question, and they're going to give it to a panel of African-American community leaders, um, really speaking to uh, as authentic an audience as we can identify. So they spend the whole morning doing that. It's a big expanse of time to go deep. And they have breaks to move. It's not sitting at your desk the entire time, but it's, it's a pretty single point of focus. Um, then there's lunch and a longer break for movement and then a rotation of classes in the afternoon that's a little bit more of a traditional schedule where they're rotating through various electives as well as language and a math class um, so that's a typical day and then over the course of a week um, they have that um, really unusual schedule on Wednesdays that I mentioned where the morning is spent doing their kind of the inner work curriculum. And then in the afternoon, we go out on an expedition and they go see a business or a scientific lab or a university or a politician, always just weaving these threads of connection to what real people are struggling with in real life. And so much of the motivation and engagement at this age comes from making school less of an isolated bubble. Wow. And these real work or sorry, real life connections that you guys are making, the work of that, how much of that's being done by you as staff to make connections to people you know or helping to reach out and how much of that's done through the kids themselves finding these people, reaching out, making those connections to make these contacts? It's, it's all the above. Um, recently, we had kids um, protest uh, around City Hall there was a kind of national walkout day in response to gun violence in schools. And while they were protesting, the kids met a guy who was protesting with them who happened to run an amazing nonprofit and they struck up a conversation and then a relationship and ended up having a whole, the next term having a huge project that revolved around helping this, this gentleman's nonprofit do uh, work around helping former gang members in this case. So it's emergent. Uh, and then it's also kind of seeded by the network that we tap into as staff members. From everything that I've heard you describe both in this talk and from our previous chats where we've met in person, um, it just sounds like you guys are on the absolute cutting edge and everything sounds really incredible about the school. But I'm wondering if there's maybe 
some underlying challenges or problems you guys are facing or areas of growth for the school that you're seeing where you go like, yeah, no, for sure, these several categories, we've got all these boxes ticked, but here's something yeah. that's emerging as something. Give me a sense that it's not all just perfect. Is this Oh, something? God. It's so, no, I mean, uh, I think anytime you have a big expanse of time to envision something, and for me, I've been dreaming of this school since I was in college. That's when I wrote the first kind of design. So anytime you have that much time to develop vision, you know, when it enters reality, in our case, at least, you know, half of it is going to break. <laughs> and so that's, that's our reality too. I mean, we, we really try to put the frame around this. If this is a lab school, this is a place where we're going to get to do conscious experiments and often they'll fail. And so we've done all kinds of failed experiments or things that we have taken in as assumptions and haven't figured out how to challenge yet. Um, so to give you a few examples, uh, the one that's most on my mind recently is that I think there's a huge opportunity to change physical education that it's done in often just very superficial ways. Uh, and the research and the clarity that is available from the scientific world about how that changes our ability to learn, our mental health, our ability to reach our human potential is, you know, that research is extremely clear. And yet we still find ourselves having, uh, you know, just a couple hours a week for kids to do PE it strikes me to be more sensible to do a couple hours per day uh, and also hard, of course, to, to make the trade-offs around that. So that's a big area for us to grow into. And we've been trying to come up with some new designs to try out that would be a different way to approach PE or somatic education that as kids are entering their adult bodies for the first time to really give them not only ways to be healthy physically, but to derive insight and awareness from better connections with their body and I think bodies. And I think that's clearly possible, but we have to figure out how to build it into the, into the whole. So that, that's one that's eluded us so far. But, um, you know, in other ways, I think a lot of our biggest challenges have been around how do we pass leadership to students? Um, we're trying to develop in them the ability to be citizens and the ability to be, aware, conscious, reflective, ethical humans. And so we're so eager to give them autonomy, to give them independence, to make decisions. And we've had some blunders in how, how that transition happens. And we've learned you know, that as you're building the culture of a school, um, you have to accept that the adults are going to set that culture first. And then you invite students in to take larger and larger roles. Um, so I think we, we probably ceded too much immediately to students at first and had too high a level of chaos in the very beginning of the school. And we've gradually started to rebalance that and try to find our way. And I think we're now at the point where students have more control than they did at the very beginning, but it's, it's with less chaos. So we're, we're fumbling our way toward something that feels like it's giving them meaningful autonomy, not token, token autonomy, um, but still keeping an environment that feels focused. And I'm imagining being on the cutting edge of this, like you're probably navigating and playing with that line of order and chaos constantly in the articulation of what the school is. Are you? Yes, without a doubt. I mean, and it's easy to, be tugged back by our own memories of traditional school. I went to traditional schools to be afraid of any time that order seems threatened. 
Um, but some of our best moments have been when we've let a meeting go on a little too long or where it's taken some odd detours from student requests and we're about to say, that's it, guys, we've got to get on to the next thing. But then an idea starts to bubble up. So um, I'm trying to learn some patience with that. And, and uh, I suppose one way to put it is, how do you hold a container for students? That's language that, that we often use um, that is not restrictive uh, to them where they're going to figure out more of who they are but it's still a held space that the adults are still setting by their intentions and structures that they've put in place. And that's kind of a funky balance uh, to find, but a constant, a constant exploration, <laughs> put it that way. My last question before I bring Brendan in here, because I'm assuming there's about a million threads he'd like to follow up with you on. <laughs> um, we started this conversation by discussing the missed opportunities from adolescence and how as a culture, we typically kind of steamroll over that. Um, what, are the, what are the gifts of adolescence that we've typically missed by not being present to what's going on in adolescence and not giving it its, its, its deserved attention? Yeah. I guess put, put it this way. My, my sense is that Adolescents will keep growing through developmental stages until they reach the stage that the adults around them are at. And so, and then they get set there and they may stay there for the rest of their lives or until their midlife crisis or whenever. So if they're in a traditional school, say where they are what matters and achievements winning the game is what matters, then they might grow through all the prior stages until they get there and then settle there for the next 70 years. So the gift of adolescence is that change is, is possible. They can grow well beyond that. But for almost all kids, it depends on some modeling from the context around them. So if we can do that, again, in our extremely imperfect ways, but if we can try to do that, so that we're showing them that achievement is extremely important, but it's not the end of the story. There are more ways to be fully alive. Um, then adolescents can become that at this age and go on to do amazing things. So that's the possibility. That's beautiful, Chris. Thank you. Brendan? Yeah, that was really interesting to listen to. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't say I had a, like a million threads going through because I think yourself and Chris really set out a really clear picture of the beliefs of the school and a lot of the practices. So I guess my questions might just seem somewhat random, like sure. hit, hitting a few random details here and there. And I think I'm just going to go through in the kind of order that, that I, I kind of hit on them. And the first one was, I guess a lot of my questions are about selling selling these ideas or, or yeah. translating them into a format that people who, who maybe are not quite on board with it would, would understand and, and kind of buy into. Yeah. And I think the first one is to get a, a definition of human potential that kind of makes sense to people who may be um, right now pretty strongly embedded into a, a, like a, a mainstream school system. 
um, where, where human potential is really not on the radar at all. So yeah. kind of how would you kind of define human potential? Yeah, great question. <laughs> I'll, I'll share what's a very work in progress idea of that. But just as, a, as context, we usually start off by saying, here's what usually happens in middle school, which is all the data on kids' engagement going off of a cliff. They start to not care about school, do the minimum, you know, all of those things, as well as, you know, the darker sides of mood disorders going up to 50% prevalence, all of those pieces. And so we know there has to be a better way. I don't believe that all of those things are biologically necessary. So we tell people about how we are trying to create this as a lab school, working with researchers and scientists um, to create and apply different ways to, to tap into what's possible for this age. Because when you tap into their core drives, and here you're getting to kind of the potential of the age, um, and we believe there are kind of three core uh, drivers that motivate adolescence, uh, which is the, the answer to these three questions. They're trying to figure out who am I? Yeah. How do I relate to other people? And how do I act in the real world? Okay. And if you build a school model around those, you get kids who care. <laughs> they're engaged. Yeah. Not perfectly. They, they'll roll their eyes occasionally. But they're kids who are going to put their passion into their learning. And so you don't see all those, the, the you know, pervasive disengagement that would be typical in a middle school. And, and so that's how we try to give our message to parents who might be not so sure if they're ready for a school that, that's different. Sure. Um, that's a really good answer. It's um, because I'm moving back into an IB school. I was mm. there previously. I moved into a, a more mainstream kind of charter school. I'm going back in, and I think these are uh, similar questions. And I guess I just flip it slightly and say, when parents come in, would you say that all of your parents are on board uh, a big percentage of the time, or is that something? Uh, that you is it a constant negotiation or, or or education of parents as well, and how do you involve them within the school life? Yeah, and you know, there's another back to Rob your question. That was a piece that we really missed the first year. That I think we were we were scrambling and we were nervous. I think about how much we could really bring parents into our full kind of aspirations for it, and we later realized that it was really silly <laughs> that we there's such a huge potential to get parents engaged and help them go on a journey with this too, because it's scary to be the parent of an adolescent and your child who you've known so well is changing in really unpredictable ways. So it's a time when they're on a journey as well uh, and are perhaps more open, um, definitely in need of community and support. So we've tried to introduce them more. We have a day where the kids all leave the school building and the parents come to school all day and they go through their student schedule and they see what the classes are but but more importantly the teachers talk about the ideas behind it so why do we teach this way and and what is it based on and what have i seen happen with students and and when we teach this way so the, the parent piece I, I think is huge um that they um when they feel like they're part of something where new potential is being explored and they feel a membership, you know, just as with students, they first have to feel membership. They first have to feel belonging, then exciting things start to happen and things unfold. So with 
parents, uh, it's creating that same sense of membership. And it's still a negotiation. You know, their parents bring up concerns about, you know, how is this going to play out in high school? How are you making sure all those things that, that every school has to face? But yeah. um, I, I have times of being frustrated by those, but most of the time I feel like that's a good tension for us. If we had total freedom and we didn't have to connect to the rest of the world, I don't know that we'd be a better place for it. No, and I think, I think that's really key because I think um, this idea of, of more independent schools or more progressive schools becoming an island uh, is kind of one of the drawbacks and the worries for a lot of people entering into that system. Uh, um, as a parent, also as a teacher, um, and, and just looking for those links back to the mainstream without it, without being a case of being wagged into a position where you have to uh, kind of lock into what is expected in high schools. How do you, um, is there a particular high school that your kids kind of move into that has a similar um similar processes and similar methodologies or are your kids going off to a wide range of more mainstream uh, to progressive high schools it it's going to be a range so this year we have our first graduating class so we'll, okay, we'll know yeah. more concretely after that um but our i would expect it's a big range you know there are some schools here that are much more on the progressive side there isn't a single one that feels like they're really carrying this program forward, but there's some that are closer. I expect we'll, we'll send a number of students there. And I also expect a number will go to very traditional schools, private right. and public both. So our hope is that if we get these three years more right and students come out with more of an authentic sense of identity, uh, more ability to be metacognitive, all, all of those pieces, um, that it will serve them well even in a very traditional environment. Um, and of course, I hope they go to one that keeps the progress moving as much as possible. Yeah, sure, of course. Yeah. Beyond our control. And I guess yeah, at this point, yeah. For the context Sorry, of yeah. listeners too, I guess I've been making the assumption that um, we have an idea of what middle school is, but knowing we'll have listeners from all over the world and right. middle school is very different. Specifically, what ages is the school tailored to? Right. 11 to 14 years old. So really that the beginning of adolescence and then picking up speed and <laughs> heading straight into the heart of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the things myself and Rob being primary teachers kind of come back to a lot is that through line. And so if you were to kind of project back towards an elementary school, how many of your practices or which ones would you see apply? You would apply strongly given that, um, that abstract nature of thought is kind of, kind of only coming online a little more as they hit your age range? Yeah, you know, I struggle with that. It, it's a lot easier for me to project it forward <laughs> in years than to project it back because everything we're doing is based on the developmental science and it's all about these new abilities that are turning on, you know, usually right around age 11. Yeah. So um, I, I've never worked in the, in the earlier years, so I've would say I, I don't feel too qualified <laughs> to make uh, conjectures about it yeah. you know I'm sure seeds can be planted that that lead to this by the same way that we're trying to develop adults who are modeling things that even if they're 
largely or wholly unconscious uh, transmission to students is still going to be powerful. So if you have those adults around younger kids, uh, I would imagine that it helps us to, to sow the seeds for how they'll evolve when they become more abstract thinkers and they're starting to shape their identity more consciously. Uh, yeah. No, and I get that. I think for myself and, and, and Rob, we've had lots of talks about this, about the fact that the kids we teach are developmentally different to those uh, junior high school and high school students who are in a lot of ways ready for those project-based or most more um, autonomous or more self-driven kind of projects. And it, it's really a tough one. So um, I, I guess my, my question, my next question is related to, to that in some way that a lot of teachers will be working outside of uh, a kind of your style of, of schooling. Um, mm -hmm. And Rob kind of described these guys as hackers with you guys as being pioneers. So kind of what, say I was a middle school teacher and um, would you give me any kind of tips or hints or directions to go in for me to hack the current mainstream system? Mm. That could be a whole other series of podcasts. There's so much, so much I would say about that. Um, I, I think it starts off with your own inner work that even if you're in the most traditional school, you're probably still going to be in spaces where it's just you and a group of kids and your awareness and consciousness is going to shape that space. Two students have a conflict. Do you get triggered by that and get angry? Or can you find a way to hold space for them showing that this might be a, something that you see as a normal developmental thing and here's what we're going to learn from it. Here are tools for it. When you're trying to transition your class from one activity to another, do you do that, you know, and yelling at them to stop talking or, you know, add, trying to add stress? Or can you do it by helping them take a breath and learn that through a few simple breaths like that, they can start to change their consciousness and focus and notice that and bring that to their attention. So all of that comes from your own ability to know it in yourself, um, to have that aliveness um, and groundedness, and then you do your best to try to pass it along. <laughs> so that's where I start. And then there are 50 places to go. Finding those small spaces without making major changes to the actual system as it stands and then finding the places within the system you can change. I think that's a lot of what myself and Rob have tried to do at the previous schools yeah. going forward. Okay, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up with one final question. Hmm. So if the state of California or even the federal government came to you tomorrow and say, okay, we're ready to upscale your, your project, your lab school, statewide, nationwide, would you take it? <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't know how, how would you do it? Yeah, <laughs> I, um, I, would have, I would have many, many questions. For me, put it this way, it takes us six plus months to hire each teacher because okay. we're looking for people, a really special group of people who've done a lot of work in this way with kids, but equally or more importantly than a lot of self-work. Uh, and are humble about it. So I think the biggest challenge to trying to get this out there more is to 
find more people who want to educate in this way. And then as you guys are doing with this podcast, connect them as they'll yeah. be much faster and develop much faster when they're connected. So what we've just started to do, um, we just got a grant to start doing teacher training beyond our own walls. And that's the way I would imagine it growing. Um, I don't personally, I don't really want to operate other schools, but I, I would love to help other educators grow in this, in this way and have credibility and, and some structure behind that so that they feel like it's really directly contributing to their work and that other schools would recognize that. So uh, that, that would be the path I would choose is you don't need every school to be a lab school, but more teacher training that would develop this skill set would be powerful. Yeah, I think that's absolutely key. I, I totally agree that, that it's the teachers, it's the teachers that are in place, whatever the system is, they are going to dictate that kind of philosophy that underlies what's done. And yeah, we, um, yeah, if the, if the culture is not right there within the teachers, then it, it's going to, no matter what strategies are in place or what systems are in place, it's not going to have the outcomes that we're kind of aiming for. Yeah, that's it. The, the ways the teachers live their lives, that's the basis of the curriculum. Yeah, yeah that is the curriculum. <laughs> so that's yeah. where the change can happen. If this episode of Reinventing Education was insightful or useful to you, feel free to reach out and connect to us on social media. We'd enjoy having your perspective join the conversation about what reinventing education might look like. Feel free to find us on our Facebook page, Reinventing Education Podcast, and join the discussions there. From Brendan and myself, thanks for joining us.